Well, good morning. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Pastor Nick is one of my favorite professors at Mid-America. Whenever I have a question or whenever I have a concern or anything to ask, Pastor Nick is always open. He always has an open door policy. And I'm sure that y'all appreciate his ministry as well. And I also appreciate the opportunity to come here today and to give a word. Uh, it's not something that I take lightly. The, the preaching of God's word is the central channel through which I believe God speaks to the congregation. Worship and singing songs is great, and I love those things. We see throughout Scripture as, as the Psalms were written in the song format that the people of God for all of history have lifted up praises to God through the, the act of singing. But even more than singing, I love preaching the word. Now, preaching the word should not be the only time that the Christian hears the word. It should be a daily practice in the life of the Christian. But praise God for his, his sovereign choice to bless the ears of his people through the foolishness of preaching with the beauty of the gospel. So as we get into this message, I need everybody to pay attention to the message today. We'll be talking about one of the most difficult to wrestle with concepts in all of Scripture. All kinds of people, both scholars and lay people alike for all of history, have wrestled over this. Whether man or woman, boy or girl, I guarantee you that you yourself have wrestled and thought long and hard about the ins and the outs of the depth of this subject. I truly do mean that this is relevant to all people, whether as evil and wicked as Hitler, or as good and pure and more innocent in our eyes as a young child. All people, and I mean all people, who have experienced what we talk about today, never forget it. And I myself have dealt with it. I've been brought to tears as it reaches down and it takes grasp of my very soul in different situations that I've experienced in life. It has been easy to receive, and it's been hard to receive. It's been easy to give, and it's been oh so hard to give. Open with me, if you will, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Today we'll be reading verses 36 to 50. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Luke 7, 36 to 50. This is the word of God. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him, being Jesus, to dine with him. And he, Jesus, entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, standing behind him at 
his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, to himself, not out loud, to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he, Jesus, said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he, Jesus said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Today we will be talking about the topic of forgiveness. This message is entitled Forgiveness at the Feet of Jesus. Let us pray. Dear Father, I pray, I pray that you bless the reading of your word. The people in this room here, nothing else that I say, I pray that they remember your word. Lord, I am but a sinner saved by grace. I have nothing to boast of myself, no accomplishments, no education, no anything. Father, just as you walked this earth and you saved people like this woman, God, you saved me out of my dead estate and sin. I pray that you bless now the preaching of your word. Get me out of the way, Father, and speak through me through your word, to these people, whatever they came in with, whatever regret or shame or situation they're dealing with at home or at work or in their personal life that maybe no one even knows about, Father, you know it. God, your word is alive and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and Father, you can speak directly to them, but I cannot. So I pray that you bless now the preaching of your word. 
Amen. I will now spend a minute building the context of the story. The Bible deals directly with real people in real situations. These people have emotions and feelings and hardships and mountaintop moments in life. And we have Jesus' words. It is important to understand the context and the reality of this passage. If you're taking notes, simply entitle this section Context. And I do suggest taking notes. A pastor friend of mine once said that the sermon gets 40% better when the people take notes. And uh, I really appreciate that uh, bonus 40%. I believe that this story in Luke chapter 7 takes place within the first year of Jesus' earthly ministry. Often, uh, I did not recognize it till I read this text, but often people will criticize this text greatly because it appears as if Luke does not understand chronology and the timeline of events. In the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, Jesus is anointed by a woman toward the end of his ministry, within a week of his crucifixion. But Luke tells the story at the beginning. So how do we explain this? How do we deal with that tension. Well, there's a simple explanation. Very simple. Jesus was anointed by a woman more than one time. If you remember the other accounts, the woman of the story pours the oil over Jesus' head, not his feet. And a number of the disciples, Judas Iscariot specifically, was bothered by the waste of money from this woman's action. This story flows and it tells a much different circumstance. Nonetheless, Jesus had begun to make an impact within the communities that he was visiting. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus begins calling his disciples and charges them to be fishers of men. He heals a man with leprosy, reaching out and touching him, which no one would have done back then. But he reaches out and he touches the man and heals him. This causes a lot of commotion within the community. And after this, he heals a paralyzed man right before the eyes of the Pharisees and the teachers. And he tells the man that his sins are forgiven. The Pharisees are stunned by this and begin to wonder, who is this man? This blasphemer. For only God can forgive sin. And to the next chapter, in the sixth chapter of Luke, Jesus' ministry continues to fill the Pharisees with rage as he allows his disciples to pick food on the Sabbath. And he also heals a man on the Sabbath within the walls of the synagogue. They're getting angrier. In the second half of that same chapter, Luke gives us a glimpse at the great Sermon on the Mount that is extensively found in Matthew 5 through 7. I hope to be a great preacher one day, but I know that I will never come close to the preaching of Jesus. Just, just imagine, if you will, sitting on that mountain, the authority and the unction, the power behind Jesus' words. As he says, blessed is he, blessed is he, blessed is he. And he warns against sins and teaches his disciples how they ought to live. But friends, remember that we do still have the words of Christ. He may not be here in flesh and bone with us presently, but we have his words. Just as those people sat on the mountain and heard Jesus preach, you too can hear Jesus' words. Leading into our text today, Luke 7 opens with Jesus healing the centurion slave. 
He did this without even being physically present with the slave. It was as he was approaching the house that the uh, people came out and they said, the centurion says he's not worthy for you to enter his house. And Jesus, recognizing that he does not even have to be in the house to heal the man, heals the man. They come back and they're surprised to see the slave alive. You see, Jesus is God. The second person of the Trinity, he was not and is not bound by space and time. Practically, even for you, when you feel far from God, he is omnipresent. He's there with you at all times. We don't have to summon the presence of God. God is always present. Soon after, Jesus was headed to a city called Nain. A funeral procession was going by for the only son of a widowed woman. The text says that Jesus felt compassion for her. And as it's passing by, Jesus touches the coffin and commands the young man to arise from the dead. And he does. How miraculous that must have been to witness. A young man once dead in a coffin, jumping out and being alive. I would be scared at first. That's, that's not what you expect to see at funeral processions. But that is the power of our God. Immediately after that, and immediately preceding our text this morning, Jesus confirms that he is the Messiah. You see, John the Baptist was in prison this time, which is why, again, I believe that this story takes place in the first year of his ministry. And John the Baptist sends two of his disciples to ask Jesus a question. They come and they ask Jesus, Are you the expected one? Or do we look for someone else? John the Baptist was beginning to wander. The same John the Baptist who baptized Jesus in the very river. Who said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now wanted to know if Jesus would confirm that he is the Messiah. Jesus, of course, knows the answer. He is the expected one. He is the one. He proves so right after by doing many miracles and proclaiming that he is the fulfillment of messianic prophecies. This, of course, again, infuriates the Pharisees. Jesus had a knack for doing that. And it also made the religious snobs angry. How dare he make such claims? First, he's, he's forgiving sin, and now he's saying he's the Messiah. Who is this man? And all of this leads us to the door of a Pharisee. Verse 36 says that a Pharisee was requesting for Jesus to dine with him. It was not uncommon at all for the religious leaders to invite other teachers who were in the city to dine with them when they were passing by. But this one specific instance turns out much different than the normal Dining. We are told in verse 37 that there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Now, this woman, of course, was not the only sinner in the city. In fact, every single person in here, I hate to, actually, I don't hate to break it to you. I love to break it to you. But every single person in here is a sinner as well. Maybe you struggle with sin as much as this woman did. 
to the man or woman in here maybe secretly struggling with addiction, gambling, drinking, laziness, anger, pornography, unfaithfulness, homosexuality, or any besetting sin, I urge you to listen today to the words of Jesus. But friends, this woman wasn't just a regular sinner, if there is such a thing. This woman was a sinner. You see, that was her reputation. That was what she was known by in the community. Exactly what kind of sinner is not directly told to us, but it's understood that this woman was a professional sinner, if you catch my drift. She was the sort of sinner that one would just feel bad for when they saw her. She was the sort of sinner that was defined even by the world by what she does and what she has done. She was the sort of sinner that the religious elite would never be caught with, especially in their house. This woman was a sinner. But I believe, because of the text that we will look at today, that this woman had been recently changed. I don't know what it was exactly or what happened externally to her, but we know that she was different. Perhaps this woman had been there. Perhaps she was there on the mountain when Jesus was teaching to the crowds the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps she was outside sitting on the street watching as Jesus healed people and sent them on their way. Or maybe she was even at the city gates and saw from a distance the young man rise up out of his coffin, once dead but now alive. We really don't know, and the text does not say, so it might not be important. We don't really know how this woman had heard of Jesus. But friends, she had heard of him. And there was nothing more that she wanted than to meet this man. And this is where we find our first point. From this story, I hope to help you realize and help myself realize three things. The first thing that I hope we realize is the humility of heartfelt desperation. The humility of heartfelt desperation. Read with me, if you will. Verses 37 to 38. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume, the humility of heartfelt desperation. This this woman learns that Jesus, again, would be at the house of the Pharisee. I ask myself, how did this woman even get in? She was known as a sinner. Perhaps she dressed up nice and they didn't recognize her. Or maybe she slipped in unnoticed before they could catch her. However she got in, this woman was not here for just a meal or to shoot the breeze with the religious elite. This woman was here to meet Jesus. As she walks in, she sees him there. The man who heals the sick and spends time loving even the lowest within society. There he is. She did not come unprepared, but rather she came with a possession that would have been infinitely valuable to her. Especially a woman of her rank. A vial of expensive perfume. There she stands behind Jesus at his feet. And as we read the text, we see that she's at his feet weeping. She absolutely loses it. 
She gets to him and she begins to weep. As she weeps at his feet, she takes down her hair and wipes them off, pouring perfume over them and kissing them. She did not care what the elite within that room would have said. She did not care what they would have thought. This woman was desperate to humble herself before the man who could save her. As she let down her hair, just imagine that the Pharisees would have been filled with horror. What a promiscuous and vile thing to do in the presence of elites. See, at this time, it was seen as improper for a woman to let down her hair. Pharisees at this time, I learned from a commentary, would even permit men to divorce their wives for letting down their hair. Yet here is this woman in the presence of the elite letting down her hair, wiping the feet of Jesus. Friends, this woman may have been a sinner. She may have been defined by her sin, but I believe that her spirit had been made alive. For the first time in this woman's life, she knew what true love looked like. Just imagine that this woman would have looked for love in so many different places from so many different people. Visiting men night after night, trying to fulfill the emptiness within her. Yet she was never satisfied by any of it. But now here she is at the feet of Jesus, the man who can truly give her life. A man of high reputation that cares even for the lowest. This woman had heartfelt desperation to humble herself before Jesus. And friends, she was not left wanting. But there were many people in this room who did not see this situation the same way. They didn't see the woman and say, oh, this is awesome. Here she is at the feet of Jesus. I'm so glad that she was able to turn it around and was made alive and has seen the love of Christ. No, these people would have been absolutely horrified and disgusted to see such a thing. One such man was the host of the party, the owner of the house, Simon the Pharisee. And it is within the thoughts of Simon that we see our second observation. So first, we saw the humility of heartfelt desperation. And now we will see the pride of hard-hearted delusion. The pride of hard-hearted delusion. Read with me, if you will, in verse 39 of the text. Let's just go back to 38. Standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, as he said and proclaimed he was, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him. That she is a sinner Now, Simon did not say this out loud. He said it to himself, if you read the text. Often we think negatively of situations, at least I do. I hope I'm not the only one. Yet we choose not to say so vocally. Maybe thinking in your back of your mind, like, this is a little bit strange. You want to be nice and considerate, and you don't say anything. But Scripture shows us exactly what the thoughts of Simon were. We perhaps get a glimpse here for the real reason that Simon wanted Jesus to come over. He was not just being hospitable to invite the local, the teacher passing through the city 
to come into his house. That may have been part of the reason. But in reality, he wanted to see if Jesus was really a prophet. All the men that he was around, the other Pharisees, were proclaiming Jesus as a heretic, as a blasphemer. One who should eventually be put to death. But Simon wanted to see who Jesus really was. And he says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would. Simon believes that he knows better than the very Son of God. How delusional of him. His pride from being the top of society, the cleanest in the eyes of all the people, had led him to believe that he knew better than Jesus himself. And friends, may I say, let us be careful lest we fall into the same trap. I often hear many well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ saying, well, I think, or I think the right thing would be, this is not always an error, Yet so often it is when the view ends up being contrary to the very word of God. Let us think twice before we speak. Every thought that we have, let us surrender it to the supremacy, the value, the worth, the glory of Christ. Let us surrender our thoughts and our words to the authority and the power of Scripture. When we think, let us think through the lens of Christ. When we do, let us do through the lens of Christ. And as we live, let us live through the lens of Christ, lest we appear prideful and delusional as this man. Again, Simon thinks to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Little did Simon know that he himself was also a sinner and that Jesus, in fact, did know who and what sort of person this woman was. Just like in John 5 with the woman at the well, Jesus knew every single sin that this woman committed, whether in public or behind closed doors. He knew every thought that she thought and he knew every place that she had been. But most of all, we see in verse 47, That Jesus knew that she had been forgiven. And that's what mattered to him. Friends, let me say to you today, Jesus knows every sin that you have committed. That's a scary thought. Whether in public eye or behind closed doors where no one else knows. He knows every thought that you think. He knows every place that you have been. But if you are a born again child of God, friends, Jesus knows that you have been forgiven. You will not get to heaven. You will not pass away and go to heaven and you say, hold up, what are you doing here? Come on. Come on, be real. I I know what you did. I know that thing that you tried to hide from your husband or from your wife. I know that thing that you hid from your parents or from your teachers or from your closest friends. I know what it was. You're in the wrong place. No, friends. When we're in heaven... And even now, our sins are forgiven. We have been washed white as snow. Though sin had left the crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Regardless of what prideful religion may say, the blood of Jesus cleanses every stain. I want you to know that Jesus' blood will never lose its power. 
Jesus' blood worked back then and it works today. Jesus' blood worked at the cross and it works today. Jesus' blood worked a hundred years ago and it works today. Jesus' blood will never lose its power. The blood that Jesus shed for me way back on Calvary, the blood that gives me strength from day to day, it will never lose its power. It reaches to the highest mountain and it flows to the lowest valley. The blood that gives me strength from day to day, it will never lose its power. This woman humbled herself under the power of Christ, but the Pharisee pridefully deluded himself against the power of Christ. Which have you done? Finally, the narrative picks up from verses 40 to 47 with a parable and its application. I will read it. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A money lender who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50, when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, this is an easy question for him to answer. Well, I suppose the one whom he has forgiven more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. Jesus tells this parable of two debtors, one who owed nearly two years' worth of denarii, and the other about two months. Neither could pay the debt that they owed, yet the one whom they owed it to forgave them. Does this sound familiar? When Jesus questioned him, Simon understood the parable. After all, he was a smart man. He answers correctly that the one whom is forgiven uh, more has loved more, yet he did not really understand what Jesus was saying. See, Simon had answered a question never more easily in his life. Yet he has also never missed the point so blatantly in all of his life. Jesus rebukes Simon for missing the point and shows how the woman was not in error, but was rather the one doing as she ought. Simon had not loved Jesus, but this woman loved the one who forgave her. Jesus turns to the woman and tells her, your sins have been forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The final thing that I want us to see from the text today, not only the humility of heartfelt desperation or the pride of hard-hearted delusion, but friends, I hope that we see the beauty of having debt forgiven. The beauty of having debt forgiven. Verses 47 to 50. 
For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. She loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The other day, me and my fiance uh, went to Sugarloaf Mountain together out in Arkansas, went hiking for the day just to spend the day in nature and spend some time together in the middle of our busy, busy lives. The mountain was beautiful. The trees were beautiful. Before I get in trouble, of course, my fiance was beautiful. But as beautiful as the things, and as beautiful as the nature, and as beautiful as the people may be, friends, there is nothing in this world more beautiful than the divine grace of God and his forgiveness. And there are three things that I believe make his forgiveness so beautiful. Of course, there are many more, but I want to show you three. The first thing is that Christ's forgiveness is given. It's not earned. Christ's forgiveness is given, not earned. If anyone in this story appeared forgiven from the cultural viewpoint, it would have been Simon the Pharisee, an upholder and a defender of the Jewish laws. Yet Jesus did not need forgiveness. Simon wrongly thought he was above the need for forgiveness. And the woman was at the feet of Jesus, desperate for forgiveness. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus and he's explaining doctrines of salvation. And he tells them, for by grace, by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, forgiveness is given to us by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast purely by the grace of Almighty God. Christ's forgiveness is not only given, not earned, but Christ's forgiveness is complete, not partial. Complete, not partial. This woman was not only forgiven for the sins that she had done the week before. She was not only forgiven for the sins that she had committed over the past year or past two years or three years. But friends, she was forgiven for every sin that she had ever committed or ever would commit. Unlike the forgiveness of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, which would satisfy for only a time, Friends, Jesus' blood satisfies for all of time. If you are forgiven, you are forgiven, and that will never change. And this goes hand in hand with the third aspect of Christ's forgiveness. Christ's forgiveness is not only given, not earned, complete, but not partial. Christ's forgiveness is eternal, not temporal. She was restored to relationship with Christ and was justified for every sin, by his doing. One day this woman would pass away. We don't know how long it was. We don't know if she kept up with Jesus throughout his ministry and saw him crucified and resurrected. But we do know she was forgiven. One day she would pass away and she would be glorified in heaven with Christ 
the one who forgave her on earth for all of eternity. She would never lose this. One of the most important concepts to understand in Scripture is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Friends, once you are saved, you are always saved. Romans 8, 29 to 30 says, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Not one person was lost in that group. Those who were foreknown would be glorified. Those who were predestined would be glorified. Those who were called would be glorified. Those who were justified would be glorified. This woman had not only been foreknown by God, predestined by God, called by God, justified by God now, but friends, one day she would be gloriously glorified by God. And nothing could happen to change that, to break those links. This woman was forgiven and would always be forgiven in full. And friend, let me comfort you. Because I know the temptations of this world can get hard. I know that life can get hard. We can get tired. We can get worn out. We can stop pursuing personal time with Christ and appear as if we're drifting away. But friends, if you are a child of God, you are forgiven. Now this should cause you to pursue Christ more than anything. And that is the test of a true salvation. If they pursue Christ above all else, if they truly take up their cross and follow him. But friends, if you are a child of God, you are forgiven and you will always be forgiven in full. We don't have to worry like those who try to base their salvation off of works. We don't have to worry if we will not do enough good to get into heaven. There's only one name under heaven whereby men may be saved, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. Those who follow Muhammad and try to do all the good they can to get the scales to go in the direction of good, no matter how hard they try, friends, without Christ, they will die and go to hell. The Buddhist who tries to reach another level of mental state, Without Christ, they will die and go to hell. The Catholic, perhaps, who believes that, sure, they say that we're saved by grace, but there's also an aspect of works to it, right? No. Friends, if that Catholic is pursuing works rather than the grace of God and the forgiveness of Christ, they will not die and go to purgatory and work off their sin, or maybe a rich ancestor will pay off their sin. Friends, they will die and go to hell. Unless they believe in the grace of God. If you are a child of God, you are forgiven and will always be forgiven. I pray that you have seen today from this glimpse into the earthly ministry of Christ from the woman, the humility of heartfelt desperation. From Simon the Pharisee, the pride of hard-hearted delusion. And from Jesus, the beauty of having debt forgiven.
Forgiveness is given, complete, and eternal. And it's what every person needs. This woman needed forgiveness. Maybe you have reoccurring sin in your life that hasn't been laid at the feet of Christ. I urge you to do so. Because only then will your burdened soul find liberty at Calvary. Only then will we truly see and experience the love of Christ when we get forgiveness at the feet of Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your holy, inspired word. I thank you for everyone who is here today. Lord, you are sovereign. You have put in this audience the people who need to hear this message. You have given me the words to speak through your scripture directly to these people's lives. And God, if by your grace you choose to do so, Father, you will save and forgive them. I pray if there's anyone in here today who does not know you, Father, that you would draw them they would come and experience once and for all forgiveness at the feet of Jesus. Let us not passively remember this story as we go. But let us worship you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who rose from the dead to save his people. I pray all this in your holy, mighty name. Amen. next time of worship, I ask that you would stand and let us reflect on the passage. That looks different to different people. Maybe you need the forgiveness of Christ and you recognize this. Or maybe you have received the forgiveness of Christ already and you just wish to worship him for who he is. Regardless, let us worship.